As a result of the marriage of the church with paganism, the perversion of the true gospel message, and the abuse and the neglect of scripture, the church of the Middle Ages, the papal church, which is represented by the Thyatiran church of Revelation chapter 2, departed drastically from what Christ had originally intended for it to be as his witness to the world. Truly, Satan used the church of the Middle Ages as a tool to bring great dishonor to Christ and to his kingdom. This, as we saw in our previous lesson, as we began our study of this letter to the Thyatiran church, was why he not only described himself to this church as the very son of God who sees all and who knows all with his penetrating eyes, but why he had very little by way of commendation to say to this church, but much to say by way of condemnation. Now, in our previous lesson, we learned that Thyatira was a city of trade guilds and that the church located there had made the grave mistake of tolerating a false prophetess to enter into the church and actually um, seduce God's servants into believing her false teaching. Her name was or at least she was referred to as Jezebel, probably was not her real name. So they not only tolerated her within their church, but they actually allowed her to seduce them with her lies. Now we're going to see today what the Lord Jesus had to say by way of accusation to this church as he turned from his one verse of commendation, his one verse of approval, to his four verses of condemnation, which he began with the word notwithstanding. Now, if you remember our outline for this study, last time we covered the details about the city, we looked at the details about the church, and then we talked about the description of Christ where he said he is the son of God, not the son of man, the son of God, and he had fiery, you know, flames of fire shooting out of his eyes, and he had his um, feet were like fine bronze, heated fine bronze. It spoke of judgment. And then we moved into the fourth part of our outline, the declaration from Christ, which is the bulk of the letter, but we only got so far as looking at his approval. So today, we're going to cover his accusation. That's it. And then next time we'll finish up the letter by looking at his admonition, his award, and his appeal. So let's look at verses 20 to 23, his accusation against the church at Thyatira, starting at verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth, calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works." The Lord Jesus Christ reached back into the Old Testament for the name of the evil woman who brought Baal worship into Israel and perverted the nation, and he used her as a point of comparison for the Thyatiran woman who brought paganism and its satanic teaching into the church. Queen Jezebel was one of the wickedest women in all of the Old Testament. She was the notorious daughter of King Ethbael, B-A-A-L is the end of his name. Uh, so you can tell where they're coming from. He was the heathen king of Sidon who worshipped Baal. And she herself was very probably a priestess because she came from a priestly family which worshipped Baal. She married King Ahab who was not only a very poor excuse for a king, but he was also a poor excuse for a man. When he married Jezebel, King Ahab was the king of Israel, by the way. When he married Jezebel, he essentially married Israel and the worship of Jehovah God to paganism 
So, you know, we're talking about a marriage of the church with the world. King Ahab married the world or the Israel to the world. He married the worship of Jehovah God to the worship of Baal. Because when Jezebel came into Israel as his queen, she brought her religion and all of her idols with her. She literally saw to it that Baal worship was set up everywhere, in all of the groves, all over Israel, and in all of the high places. In fact, by the time of the prophet Elijah, she had 450 prophets of Baal who ate regularly at her table in the royal palace. Well, eventually, you know the story, eventually the prophet Elijah had enough of this Baal business, and he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest. And, of course, the outcome was that God won, because, after all, God is the one and only true God. Jezebel also wickedly obtained the vineyard of Naboth, N-A-B-O-T-H, For her weak husband, Jezebel obtained it for her husband by having poor, innocent Naboth killed. Her actions in doing this were very similar to the behavior of the organized church during the Dark Ages. When when she, the church, or Christendom at that point, was challenged by the early men of the Reformation just like Elijah of old challenged Jezebel. Just as Jezebel sought after Elijah when he killed off all her prophets, she sought after him with a terrible vengeance, so too did the Catholic Church pursue with vengeance such reformers as John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and John Huss and Jerome Savannarola and others. And so too did she pursue with vengeance those groups of people who were really the forerunners to the Reformation, groups who opposed her unbiblical teaching and her authority. And these people really made up the true church at that time, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But like Naboth, they suffered death for attempting to hold on to what was rightfully theirs, holding on to the truth, holding on to the word of God and the true doctrines of the faith. Such people as the Waldensians, the Albigenses, the Anabaptists, the Huguenots, the Mennonites, and other non-Catholic groups who protested Roman Catholicism, that's why they were called Protestants, Protestants, They were slaughtered by the millions as heretics. Like Naboth, they were falsely accused of heresies and all kinds of abominable practices. However, the records that we have of their trials reveal that these people had beliefs extremely similar to evangelical Christians today. And the property, something else that's interesting, the property of these people was confiscated, just as Naboth's vineyard had been confiscated. And it was divided between the leaders of the various inquisitions. Besides the Spanish Inquisition, there was also the uh, Roman Inquisition and the Medieval Inquisition. And so these, their property was confiscated and uh, divided up among them and the popes. The victims of the Catholic Inquisitions, who were burned at the stake, by the way, because the popes decreed that Christians shouldn't shed blood, so they burned their victims at the stake instead. The victims of these Inquisitions exceeded by hundreds of thousands the number of Jews and Christians who had been killed by those ten pagan persecuting Roman emperors. So, in the name of Christ, more Christians were killed than the Roman emperors had killed by the hundreds of thousands. I read one account that said as many as 68 million Christians were killed during the years of these, the Dark Ages, the Thyatiran time of history we are talking about. The real danger of the Old Testament Queen Jezebel, I'm going back to Ahab's wife, was in the fact that she did not attempt 
to get rid of the worship of Jehovah God. As far as we can tell, she would have been perfectly content if the true prophets, such as Elijah, had simply been willing to allow Baal worship to, to continue on, you know, along with the worship of Jehovah. She didn't want to take anything away from the worship of God, you see. She merely wanted to add something to the worship of Israel. She wanted to add the worship of her idol, Baal. And that was very clever, very clever, very subtle, because it was far less likely to arouse the anger of the people, of the Israeli people. If she had just come into Israel, you know, as the new queen, and had pushed out everything having to do with God, then what do you think the Israelites would have done? I mean, in a moment, they would have rebelled. Definitely, they would have rebelled. But instead, you see, she said nothing against God. She didn't say anything against God. She just slowly started adding Baal worship here and there and everywhere pretty soon and had altars everywhere. You see, this way was kind of slow, and she just added something, didn't say a word against God. This way, nobody really paid much attention as God was slowly, gradually eased right out of Israel, little by little. When some of the true prophets of God started to complain about this, you know, what did she do? She just quietly had them killed off until poor Elijah thought that he was the only one left. He thought, you know, he had a big pity party thinking he was the only prophet of God left. And what did God tell him? God always has his remnant. He said, no, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. The Jezebel of the New Testament, Thyatiran church, used, you see, this same kind of tactic. That's why Jesus calls her Jezebel. She's the same tactic as Queen Jezebel. She didn't protest the worship of Jesus Christ. She merely added some of her own poison to the church, or, you know, her leaven as Queen Jezebel had added her poison into Israel. The woman of Thyatira claimed to be what? She claimed to be a prophetess, right, which means that she was claiming to have direct revelation from God. A prophet has direct revelation. That's what she's claiming. In other words, she was saying that she had new words and new secrets unknown before and new revelation from God himself. She was setting herself up as the authority in teaching doctrine. Her leaven was the teaching that it was okay for the Christians of Thyatira to eat those things which had been sacrificed to the idols when they went, you know, to their trade guild feasts. And that it was okay for them to drink the wine which had been toasted to the guild gods and to mingle with the pagan people in their drunken orgies. She, just like Balaam, was seducing believers into a situation of fornication, you know, spiritual and even physical fornication with pagans. Also, just like Balaam, she probably assured them that mingling with these pagans, these unbelievers, was the best way to win them to the truth and to show them Christian love. And also, she probably assured them that they were free in their Christian liberties to do such things without offending God and without bringing any harm to their own testimonies, which we know is a lie, a total lie. Well, before too long, there was a syncretistic religion in Thyatira. Syncretism is the combining or the reconciling of different beliefs. You bring different things together. That's what they had in Israel. They had the worship of Jehovah God with the worship of Baal. That's a syncretistic religion. So in Thyatira and during the Church of the Dark Ages, there was a syncretistic religion. The Roman Church was Christian in its essence, but it was quite pagan and Judaistic in its practice. And eventually, the practice affected her doctrine. The papal church claimed, just like Jezebel of Thyatira, the role of a prophetess. 
She claimed that she had authoritative and infallible revelation from God. She decided to add a number of pagan practices into the church, and she hoped that just like Queen Jezebel of Israel, that nobody would make much of a protest about it, that she would just gradually add these pagan practices into the church, you know, to attract the pagans into the church. Originally, that was the motive, to attract them to Christianity. Well, for almost a thousand years, very few people did notice or, or protest. And those who did were quickly silenced, like the prophets of Israel. I just put that picture up there because you can see where one example, the, the hat that the Pope wears even to this day came from the hat of Dagon, the fish god. And that is very clear from those pictures. Some of the added revelations from the prophetess church just during this Thyatiran stage of church history, there have been more added since this, but I am just now talking about the years of the Thyatiran stage, which was about 600 to 1500 A.D. Some of these added revelations were that the title of Papa or Pope was given to the Roman emperor. The kissing of the Pope's foot was begun. The king of France gave political power to the Pope. The worship of the cross and images and relics were introduced. We are not to worship the cross. It's a symbol, but we're not to worship it. Holy water was introduced. The worship of St. Joseph, that's the stepfather of Jesus, was introduced and established. Uh, In 995 A.D., a college of cardinals was established. No, excuse me, 927. In 995, the canonization of dead saints was begun. And then fasting on Fridays was begun in 998 A.D. Celibacy of the priesthood was decreed for the first time in 1079. Then the rosary was introduced in 1090. The Inquisition, which was, as we mentioned a little while ago, the torturing and the burning at the stake of those heretics who disagreed with the church's teaching. This was introduced and authorized in 1184 A.D. Then the selling of indulgences was begun in 1190. The doctrine of transubstantiation, which we are going to talk about at great length this morning, was also introduced. It was decreed into the church in 1215 A.D. The adoration of the communion wafer, which we're going to talk about this morning, which is also called the host or the Eucharist, was begun in 1220. The Bible was forbidden to laymen common people in 1229 A.D. Then the communion cup was forbidden to the people in 1414 A.D. Purgatory, I think I'm supposed to stay in this one. Purgatory was introduced um, as a dogma of the church in 1438. Then the Jesuit order was founded in 1534. And in 1545, the books of the Apocrypha, those are the intertestamental books, you know, that they, the Catholic Bible has between Malachi and Matthew. Um, those were declared to be of equal authority with the Bible in 1545. Now, more revelations were and are continuously added to the teachings of this church. So the organized church, as you can see, was acting as a prophetess as she claimed further and further revelation from God. And as she brought into Christendom all kinds of elements which were adopted from paganism, elements which find no basis at all in scripture. Now, while we are on this particular subject, and even though this means that I'm going to have to finish our study of the letter to the Thyatiran church next week, I want to discuss two of these added, quote-unquote, revelations to the Roman papal church, which, which I just mentioned to you. The one is the doctrine of transubstantiation, which was added as church doctrine in 1215. And the other one that we'll discuss is the adoration of the wafer.
and that became a church doctrine in 1220 A.D. I believe it is very important to discuss these two doctrines. I believe that it is very important for us to understand where one billion people who claim to be Christians are coming from and what is going on in the, the bulk of Christendom today. When we talk about transubstantiation, which takes place during the sacrifice of the Mass, we come to the very heart of Roman Catholicism and also to the heart of the Eastern Orthodox faith, the faith that I was raised in. There are two branches. There's the Russian Orthodox and there's the Greek Orthodox. Because it is this transubstantiation is the unique element, really, which separates these religions from all other religions and especially what separates it from evangelical Christianity. Transubstantiation is the teaching that the bread and the wine of the Holy Communion, as they call it, literally become by way of a miracle, quote unquote, a miracle, um, which only the Catholic or the Orthodox priest can perform that they actually become the true and the complete body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the Council of Trent, the Catholic authorities proclaimed that belief in the miracle of transubstantiation was essential to salvation. And they pronounced a curse on anyone who would deny it. And that is, in fact, why many of the Protestants were burned at the stake, because they would not admit that the wafer and the wine actually became the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Now, here is actual Catholic law, which was established at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was held in 1545 to 1563. This is a direct quote from that council. It says, quote, If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, speaking of the wafer, that anyone denies in it are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ but says that he is in it only as a sign or a figure or a force, let him be anathema. That means let him be damned, let him be cursed, let him be put to death. That is in the Canons and Decrees of the Council of Trent, also in the Catholic Encyclopedia. I have all this stuff documented in your notes. The Peace of Wafer having said to become the whole physical Christ, is then offered up by the priest as a sacrifice, according to not only the Council of Trent, but according to Vatican II, which was held in 1962 to 1965, this is their words, the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated. It is the source and the summit of the whole of the church's worship and of the Christian life. End of quote. Catholic teaching on this subject goes on to even to say, oops, jump in the gun here, goes on to say that because the elements are changed into Christ, he is, quote, present in our churches, not only in a spiritual manner, but really, truly, and substantially as the, as the victim of a sacrifice. That's the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 7, page 346. Now, this teaching, which is truly their teaching, stands in stark contrast to the Lord's own words as he was about to give up the ghost when he said on the cross in John 19.30, it is what? Finished. According to the teaching of Catholicism and the Orthodox religion, it isn't finished. The Lord's sacrifice continues to this very day as it is endlessly repeated on Catholic altars around the world. Vatican II and the New Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church confirms this teaching. They say this, here's a, again a direct quote, Each time Mass is offered, the sacrifice of Christ is repeated. A new sacrifice is not offered, 
but by divine power one and the same sacrifice is repeated. In other words, they're saying the, the same sacrifice on the cross is repeated. Not a new one, the same one. And they go on and say, In the Mass, Christ continues to offer himself to the Father as he did on the cross. That's right out of Vatican II. But they go on to say this is done in, quote, an unbloody manner under the appearance of bread and wine. Well, I'd like to ask them a question. I would like to ask how a sacrifice can be unbloody and do any good at all. Why even do it if it's unbloody, which they say it is, under the appearance of the bread and wine? Because we know in Scripture, Hebrews 9.22, it tells us that without the shedding of what? Blood, there is no what? Remission. There's no forgiveness. They call the Mass a propitiatory sacrifice in which, quote, Christ offers himself perpetually for the salvation of the entire world and the work of our redemption is accomplished. The contrast between what Catholicism teaches and what the Bible has to say could not be greater than when it comes to the matter of the supposed sacrifice of the Mass. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes to us that the penalty for sin was paid in full upon the cross. Hebrews 7.27 tells us that Christ did not need to daily offer up himself as a sacrifice, as the Old Testament priests had to do. But he did this once. It says he did this once when he offered up himself on the cross. The scripture stresses the difference between the Lord's one sacrifice and the continual, you know, Old Testament sacrifices which had to be repeated daily, didn't they? You know, over the centuries, just many, many, many times they had to repeat the sacrifices. But that's contrasted to the Lord's one-time sacrifice. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was offered only once is given as proof positive that his sacrifice was sufficient and that it never had to be, what, repeated, exactly. That the Mass must be repeated over and over and over again is proof alone, then, of its ineffectiveness. The doctrine of the Mass directly, directly contradicts what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, this is right out of Hebrews 10, it says, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What was... Um, the writer of Hebrews talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system no matter how many times they offered the sacrifices they could never take away sins but he goes on but this man speaking of Christ after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down you know the priests never could sit down because their job was never done but what did Jesus do when he ascended into heaven he sat down because his work was Finished. Right, exactly. He sat down on the right hand of God, for by one offering he perfected forever them that are sanctified. That is so clear. That is so clear. In view of this very, very clear biblical teaching, those who believe that the sacrifice of the cross should be continually renewed in the Mass do exactly what is warned against doing. Also in Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 6, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to what? An open shame. The true Christian's faith is in Christ's completed sacrifice on the cross. The devout Catholic's faith is in his church's Ability, alleged ability to repeat that sacrifice upon its altars. Yet even the Pope, even the Pope cannot say how many repetitions may need to be, uh, may, 
may be needed, thank you, to get a person to heaven. Even the Pope can't say. Therefore, many Catholics will designate large sums of money in their wills to their local Catholic church so that after they die, hundreds of masses will be said on their behalf in the hope that they will make their, that will make their time in purgatory shorter. Now this false teaching, what do you think this does? This breeds tremendous uncertainty and not the calm assurance that the Lord himself offers in the word of God. As a matter of fact, it is a doctrine of the Catholic Church. Got it way back here. I was going to speak about it at the end here. At the Council of Trent, and this was um, repeated in the Vatican II Council, it, anyone who says that they know for a fact that they are going to heaven is to be anathema, to be cursed. So those of us who have assurance of our salvation are cursed, damned. By, we have no right, they say, to be able to say that. The Pocket Catholic Dictionary states this, quote, The more often the sacrifice of the Mass is offered, the more benefit is conferred. End of quote. Yet... How much benefit there is in each Mass, no one can say. No priest, no cardinal, no pope. Furthermore, the whole concept of transubstantiation is totally unbiblical. The bread and the wine of which the Lord spoke as he initiated the Lord's Supper are symbols of his body and blood. They obviously did not become his body and blood. They don't become his whole person, in fact. You know, his, uh, what did it say? His divinity and his, I forget what it said, but they don't become his whole person as Catholicism teaches because, think about this, he was still there bodily in the presence of his disciples when he offered them the cup and the bread. I mean, he was still in his humanity, and he could not be two places at once. He couldn't be there before them, and then also in the cup and in the bread. Christ did not give his flesh or his blood as a sacrifice for sins until when? When did he give himself? On the cross. Therefore, if when he said at the time of the Lord's Supper, when he first you know, initiated the Lord's Supper. When he said, this is my body, this is my blood, if that was to be taken literally, then he actually sacrificed himself before he went to the cross. He sacrificed himself there in the upper room when he was offering them the bread and the wine. Also, think about this. It was strictly against God's law for a Jew to drink blood. We have this repeatedly in the Pentateuch, especially the book of Leviticus. And even the apostles, the New Testament apostles, urged Gentiles to abstain from blood. You can read that in Acts 15, 28, 29. So Jesus Christ would certainly not require Christians or Jews to drink his literal, physical blood, because to do so would have been a violation of God's law. Jesus Christ never broke God's law. If he had, he would have been a sinner. And he wouldn't have been an accomplice to sin either. He wouldn't have been telling them to do something against God's law. Neither, of course, would he be promoting cannibalism which a literal eating of his physical body would be. Rather, what was he speaking of? He was speaking of believing on him. He was speaking of internalizing him into one's inner man, and he used the analogy of eating and drinking to illustrate that truth. Very simple. I mean, he said he was a vine and we're branches. Now, we know we're not really branches, and he said he was a door. Well, we know he's not really a physical door. I mean, it's just obvious sense. When the Lord Jesus Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished, and he died. At that instant that he died, what happened? What amazing thing happened in the temple? Remember? Yes, the veil, the 
thick veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. God did it (laughs) at the moment his son died. And it exposed the Holy of Holies to view. Why did God do that? Well, he was dramatically demonstrating that he was doing away with the whole Judaistic sacrificial system and its priesthood. He was doing away with it. It was no longer needed. Christ's sacrifice was perfect, and it was once for all. It never needed to be repeated. But you see, Satan had other plans, and he created a way to bring it back to continue an ongoing sacrifice. And he used the Roman Catholic Mass to do so. You see, Satan wanted to show the Lord Jesus. If you were Satan, what would you want to do? He wanted to show the Lord Jesus Christ as a continuously dying Savior. Because a dying Savior looks mighty powerless, right? And he's always in his humility. And this is what he does by way of the um, use of the mass, continual sacrifice. And also he would like to project to the world a dead savior, a dying savior and a dead savior. And this is exactly what he does by use of the crucifix. A crucifix is a cross with Jesus still on it. A crucifix has no right being in a true Christian's home. We serve a living Savior. Your crosses should be empty. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. To the church at Thyatira, which literally and appropriately means what? What does that word mean? It's a compound Greek word. I had it up here a little while ago. Continual sacrifice. Do you think that's coincidence? that that means continual sacrifice. You know those people who say that the seven churches do not give us a prophecy of church history? I don't know what they do with this. It's just so obvious and so amazing to me. But it, it does mean continual sacrifice. To this church, the Lord Jesus referred to her doctrine. If you look at verse 24, this is, these aren't my words. These are the Lord Jesus' words. He said her doctrine was the depths of who? Satan. That is, I know that is strong language, but it's not my language, it's the Lord's language. And if you think about it, to continually sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ and to put him to an open shame truly is a depth of Satan. That is truly a work of Satan. Furthermore, to worship him as a little wafer, as a wafer god, which is another practice that comes from paganism, is another depth of Satan. What else occurs during the Mass? Well, after the priest blesses the bread and the wine and then says the Latin words, hocus corpus meus, which is from where we get hocus pocus, by the way. It is. It's where it comes. Hocus corpus meus. It's where we get the word hocus pocus. After he says that... um, And both of the elements, when I say elements, I'm speaking about the wafer and the wine. Both of them are supposed to have miraculously turned into the whole Christ. You know, they teach that the wafer becomes the whole Christ and the wine becomes the whole Christ. Then they are offered up by the priest as a sacrifice. Then these little wafer hosts, as they're called, H-O-S-T-S, host, um, that is, it comes from a Latin word which means victim or sacrifice. These are then eaten by the members of the Roman church or the Orthodox church who are in good standing. And by the way, many millions of Catholics over the centuries and today have lived in terror that it will cost them their salvation if a priest denies them a wafer, if he says they are not in good standing. And they cannot have the wafer. Of course, they've taken the cup from them. We'll talk about that a little later. So what do you think a system like this does? It gives the priesthood of this church tremendous power over the people. Remember Nicolaitanism? 
Now, the cup of wine was forbidden. If you remember when I read about some of the added revelations, it was forbidden to the people in 1414 A.D. And so it is only taken now by the priest which is another unbiblical practice because Christ clearly offered both the bread and the fruit of the vine to his disciples. Well, the host or the wafer is worshipped as Christ himself, and a great many ridiculous problems and subsequent very strange doctrines have arisen or have accompanied this idea of transubstantiation over the years. For example, in the Middle Ages, there were numerous very serious discussions as to what should be done if a piece of the host, the wafer, or in the Greek church, we used bread. What would be done if a piece of that was to fall to the floor and consequently harm the body of Jesus Christ. I remember as a child taking communion that I was I lived in fear that I would drop it because you know it was always taught to us that that was Jesus and we we shouldn't dishonor Jesus and I really was so scared but they always put a a thing underneath us that I think one of the pictures showed you here they've got thing underneath just in case that should happen to catch the body of Christ or worse yet they had these serious discussions about what would happen if a person after eating the wafer was to vomit or if a dog or a mouse or an animal would happen to eat part of the wafer or eat a whole wafer, what would they do? They had serious discussions about this. At the, cons- at the Council of Constance, heated arguments took place over a similar matter concerning the wine. What would be done if some of the blood of Christ, you know, the wine, the blood of Christ, it had become the blood now, according to their thinking, what if it spilled from the cup onto a man's beard? And they discussed at great length what would they do. Some suggested that the beard should immediately burn, be burned off the man, while others seriously said that both the man and his beard should be burned at once. So these ludicrous, ridiculous problems eventually resulted in the removal of the cup from the common people because they figured that at this at least eliminated half of their problems. So the cup was removed. Yet is it not true that the early disciples could have just as easily spilled some of the cup which the Lord Jesus Christ passed to them on the night of his Last Supper? I mean, they were big, bulky fishermen. Of course, one of them might have spilled a drop. But he didn't withhold it from them, did he? Of course not. Because both the cup and the bread were merely symbols of the blood that he would shed and of the body which would be broken to pay the penalty of sins for mankind. It wasn't literally his body. It wasn't literally his blood, much less his whole person. So anyway, after the alleged miracle of transubstantiation is performed by the priest and the wafers are eaten, then the same devotion and worship is directed to additional blessed, uneaten wafers. And they are reserved in a small box-like receptacle, which is called a tabernacle. It is covered with a veil, and it sits on the altar with a light burning perpetually right near it. Devout Catholics come and pray to the wafer in this little tabernacle as though they were praying to Christ because they believe that they are in his holy presence. After all, he has been called down from heaven, you know, by the priest's hocus-pocus, his magic, and he is, has come down from heaven to reside in the wafer. The late Mother Teresa had this to say about her belief in the wafer God. This is her quote out of her book, In the Silence of the Heart. She says, It is beautiful to see the humility of Christ in his permanent state of humility in the tabernacle, where he has reduced himself to such a small particle of bread that the priest can hold him in two fingers. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is no longer in his humility. His humility ended with his resurrection. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. He is Almighty God. He is our Creator and our Redeemer. And no way would he reduce himself to a little cookie that could be held between a man's two fingers. That is ridiculous. And yet there are one billion people on the face of this earth today who are taught this doctrine. And then a large wafer, and they call themselves Christians, a large wafer is taken by the priest and it is exhibited, as you see here in the picture, in a monstrance. It's called a monstrance, which is in the center of a sunburst design. A monstrance is either silver or gold with a transparent center for displaying the wafer, which is you know, put in the middle of it. Before the monstrance, Catholics will make the sign of the cross and bow and worship the little wafer as God himself. Enclosed in a monstrance, the wafer is also carried in many processions. As a child, I have been in some of these processions, which are accompanied by extravagant pageantry. You can't imagine the amount of pageantry. The host, the word host, as I said, comes from the word victim or sacrifice. Inside of the center of this monstrance, starburst monstrance, is paraded through the streets on special feast days, with the procession sometimes lasting as long as four or five hours. Now, it's interesting to know that the Catholic Encyclopedia says this about the practice of the worship of the wafer inside of this monstrance. Here is what they say, quote, In the absence of scriptural proof, the church finds warrant for and a propriety in rendering divine worship to the blessed sacrament in the most ancient and constant tradition. What they're saying there is because we can't find scriptural proof for what we're doing here, we are going back to ancient and constant what? Tradition. Tradition. Now that kind of reasoning should immediately remind us of the Lord's words himself in Mark 7:13, where he said to the Pharisees that they made the word of God of none effect through their what? Through their tradition. It's not surprising that the teaching of transubstantiation and the practice of the worship of the wafer, called the Eucharist, that these two practices can be traced back to paganism. The historian Durant tells us in the story of civilization that belief in transubstantiation is one of the oldest ceremonies of primitive religion. And in the book Hastings Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, a great deal of evidence is supplied to show us that transubstantiation rites were prevalent among many pagan nations, tribes, and religions. In Egypt, for example, a cake, a little round cake, was consecrated by a pagan priest and was supposed to magically become the flesh of Osiris. This cake was then taken and it was eaten. And wine was also part of this rite. Even in Mexico and in certain parts of Central America, among people who, have never, who had never heard of Jesus Christ, the belief in eating the flesh of a god was found. Heathen priests ate a portion of all the sacrifices, even if those sacrifices were human. They ate a piece of it. The priests of Baal, for example, were required to eat human flesh. Therefore, the priest of Baal, known as Cana Baal, sound familiar? That's where we get our word cannibal. That's what um, they had to do. The priests of Baal, Cana Baal, had to eat part of human sacrifice. No wonder, then, that... Since these things come from paganism, no wonder that to this church, 
the church of Thyatira, the church of continual sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself as the one with judging fire in his eyes and glowing feet of, of uh, bronze judgment. No wonder he was condemning them for having tolerated the teaching of the prophetess Baal, the prophetess of Baal, you know, Je- Jezebel, who had seduced his servants into eating things that had been sacrificed to idols. The wafer has become nothing less than an idol. In fact, that is what it has always been, all the way back to these pagan religions. Now, why, we might ask, another question, why is the wafer, which is used by the Roman Catholics in their Holy Communion service, why is it round in shape? When the Lord instituted the memorial supper, and by the way, that's what it was, a memorial supper, something we are to do in remembrance of him. Remember what he said? He said, this do in remembrance of me. It's to to be a remembrance of what he did on the cross, not to be a continual sacrifice of him. But anyway, we ask the question, why is the wafer round? You know, what did the Lord do? He simply took some unleavened Passover bread and he broke it in pieces. Now, bread, I'm sure you know this, does not break into perfectly round little pieces. The reason he did that is because the breaking of the bread was to symbolize his body, which was to be broken on our behalf. You know, when he had that cruel scourging and the the nails that pierced his body, etc. However, this symbolism is not at all demonstrated by the serving of a little round-shaped wafer, you know, a a disc-shaped wafer, which is completely whole and not even broken. So what's the reason for the round wafer? Well, again, it is without a scriptural basis um, because it, like so many other things concerning this church, is another influence from paganism. Round, thin cakes are found on many ancient pagan altars, such as those used in ancient mysteries, the ancient mystery religions in Egypt. Also in the mystery religion of Mithraism, a small round cake or a wafer of unleavened bread was used to initiate the priests into its system. And it symbolized the sun, the solar disk. The round shape of the host is taken from another symbol of Baal, which is, again, the sun. In 1854, an ancient Egyptian temple was discovered with inscriptions that show little round cakes on an altar. That's like down here, little round cakes on an altar. Above the altar is a large image of the sun. And a similar sun type of symbol was used above the altar which was found in the temple in Babane, which is in Upper Egypt. And before the representation of the sun, there were two priests shown worshiping it. And even in faraway Peru, this um, picture got crumpled up in the machine, but that's in Peru. Even in Peru, this same image, image was known and it was worshiped. So one merely needs to compare the sun image before which the heathens bowed with the monstrance sun image into which the Catholic host is placed and before which Catholics bow and worship to see the striking similarities. You know, when the Israelites fell into Baal worship, through Jezebel's influence. When they fell into Baal worship, sun images were set up on their altars. And then when good King Josiah came into reign, those images were torn down. We can read about it in 2 Chronicles 34.4. The scripture tells us that those sun images were placed high above the people, high above their altars. And at the top, probably they assumed that they were put on top of um, big columns. At the top of the columns would be put a sun image. Read about this in the scripture. Well, Josiah had those things brought down. The interior of St. Peter's Catholic Basilica in Rome. I have been there twice. 
contains a huge high canopy supported by four big columns over this most important altar in all of Catholicism. This is in the Vatican, the church in the Vatican. At the top, and those columns are 95 feet high. They are really spectacular to behold. At the top of each of those columns, on high above, just as it tells us in Second Chronicles 34.4, are sun images. I don't know if you can see those right up here. They have a little picture of what it looks like. Right there at the top of each one of those four columns, there is a sun image. The sun images are just like those used in pagan worship. And they know this from archaeology and things that they have found and dug up. Also, as one would enter into St. Peter's, his eye would immediately be drawn to a huge and elaborate, right over here, golden sunburst image, which also appears above the altar. Many Catholic churches around the world, you might not see this so much in America, but around the world you surely would, many Catholic churches also have similar sun images above their altars. Interestingly, the great temple in Babylon also featured a golden sun image. It is into such a sun image, sun image called the monstrance that the host, which is declared to be Christ, is placed. Yet long before this little wafer host was called Christ, the Egyptian priests called it Osiris. In fact, upon the little wafer, you will see three letters, I-H, I-H-S are inscribed on the little round wafer today. Now to the Christian, he is told that these letters signify Jesus hominum salvator, which means that Jesus is the Savior of men. But a pagan Roman, looking at those three letters, immediately would have recognized his own trinity. Isis, Horus, and Seb which is the mother, the child, and the father of the gods, which goes right back to Semiramis, Tammuz, and Nimrod, back in Babel. Well, a lot of things here I'm going to have to skip, and you'll have to read in your notes, but let me just get into the scripture here. Is it any wonder that after stating to the Thyatiran church that he had given her space to repent of her fornication which history shows us was provided for the Roman church time and time again, especially during the days of the Reformation. She could have repented when people opened up the scripture and said, look here, look here, look at this, look, why are you doing this? This is not scriptural. She had her opportunities to repent, and yet tells us she repented not, Revelation 2.21. Is it any wonder that he said then, that he would cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. You know, Christ is gracious and he is ever loving and he is not out to destroy people. It is not his will that any should perish. He is trying to love people and draw them to himself. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church, she has been given more than ample opportunity to repent of her adulterous affair with paganism. And with her continual sacrificing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching of transubstantiation and in the Mass and in the usurping of her role as a prophetess over and above the Word of God and of her idolatry in the worship of saints and angels and popes and Mary and the host wafer in the monstrance and of killing millions of true Christians who refused to believe her doctrines, and of her great abomination, which we didn't even have time to talk about, her great abomination of selling salvation through the purchase of indulgences, which continues on to this day, and don't let yourself think it doesn't. It does. It's, it was part of the Vatican II Council to continue the sale of indulgences so that people could buy their way into heaven, buy their way out of purgatory. You know, Vatican II Council, you will hear that it changed a lot of things. No, it didn't. If you will read their print and you will read their what they produced at that council in the 60s, 
everything basically is the same. Only a few minor things were changed, such as the services would no longer be in Latin. They would be in the language so the people could understand them. And some of the idols were taken out of some of the churches. But basically everything is the same. Rome boasts that she never changes. That is her motto. So the Lord foretold what he would do to those children of Jezebel who refused to repent. He said that he would cast them into the time of great tribulation. You know, everything that the Thyatiran Jezebel advocated, if you think about it, everything she was advocating to the people in her church took place on a bed. She uh, was advocating sexual immorality, spiritual adultery with paganism, marriage to the world, you know, cohabitation with the world, and even the feasts which she was encouraging the Christians to participate in were held on chaises. Remember when we discussed the Lord's Supper? How they would recline on like a chaise. That's how they had their feasts. They were reclining. You've seen the pictures of the Romans lying on them, eating the grapes and everything. So everything she advocated took place on a bed. So Christ was making a play on words. He was saying, if you like beds so much, Jezebel... I'm going to cast you into one. I am going to cast you into a bed of pain like you have never seen before. I'm going to cast you into the bed of the great tribulation. That's what he's saying. Now, if you want to take a peek, I'm almost through, at the church, which will exist during the time of the great tribulation, you near, merely need to read Revelation chapter 17. We'll get there one of these years, Lord willing where you will learn of a woman who is sitting upon a city of seven hills. Well, there is one city in the world built upon seven hills that even claims that she is the city on seven hills, and that is the city of Rome. And you will read about a woman in chapter 17, this is the apostate church, who is dressed in purple. What was the color of Thyatira? Purple and scarlet. And this woman is decked with all kinds of gold and precious stones and pearls. And the Catholic Church is the wealthiest institution on the face, face of this earth, by far. The one world ecumenical church of the tribulation period will include all of the apostate churches, out of Protestantism too. But it will be headquartered in Rome. The Son of God... Revelation 2.18, remember how he spoke of himself as the Son of God, said that he would kill Jezebel's children with death. Now that is speaking of the second death. And we read that the church of Revelation chapter 17 is utterly destroyed and all are killed. Why does he do this? Why does the Lord Jesus Christ do this? Well, he tells us himself in verse 23 in our letter here. It is so that all the churches will know that he is the one who searches the reins and the hearts. He knows the motives. He knows everything on the inside. Nothing that the Thyatiran type church has done in her long history has escaped his all-knowing, all-penetrating eyes. He has been more than long-suffering with her as she continually sacrifices him and brings him to an open shame and worships him in a cookie. But he will not always be so long-suffering. She has done tremendous damage to his testimony and to his true servants during her history. And he will one day soon... I believe, all you got to do is read the daily papers one day very soon, use her as an example before all as he brings her to the ultimate judgment which she deserves for having deceived. And this is the tragic part. So many millions and billions of people with her seductive and her wicked doctrines of devils led people to hell who thought because they were believing her doctrines that they would be going to heaven. That is a tragedy. And I'll tell you what's even more of a tragedy and very frightening to me. 
is the amazing way in which we now find Protestants on a fast track to embrace Rome. And how many evangelical leaders, I could give you names that would blow your lids off, many evangelical leaders are intent on working with Rome's leaders to evangelize the world by the year 2000. Sounds good, doesn't it? But we're not to embrace that which is the depths of Satan. They forget about the millions of people who were tortured and slain by this church. But Christ hasn't forgotten about them. You can read Revelation 17.6. No, he has not forgotten about those people. And these evangelical people today likewise forget that Rome has a false gospel of sacramental works. And overall, she is a system which is more pagan than she is Christian. So I am warning you to beware of this movement, which is prevalent, and it's everywhere. And it's probably in your churches. It is a movement called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. You have been forewarned, not just by me, you have been forewarned by Christ himself in his letter to the Thyatiran church to not entangle yourself with Jezebel's leaven. Now, I know this lesson is strong. I know it is very strong, but you know truth is that way. Truth is strong. Truth is the only thing which will set men free. So I beseech you, let's take what we have learned and tell it to other people so that they may be set free. If they have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, they can be set free. It is never too late. Let's pray.